Hey, Cornerstone. How you doing? Super excited you're here in the room, second week talking about purpose. And we said this last week out loud. I'm telling you, I believe this with all my heart. Apart from discovering who Jesus Christ is and allowing him to be your savior, come into your life and change you, this may be the second most important conversation, the second most important decision you'll ever make in your life is discovering God's purpose. Why were you born? What, what did God hope when he made you? Last week, we kind of chronicled through the life of Moses, and here's what we discovered, that in the moments when Moses said, hey, God, I'm just going to live my purpose. I'm, I'm going to do my life my way. I mean, it belongs to me, right? That Moses' life was always less. Uh, he, he leads himself to being a shepherd on the backside of the wilderness, an entry-level job. But when he steps into God's purpose, God does remarkable things, things that none of us would even imagine with the life of Moses. That when Moses lives outside of God's purpose, the people around him were affected. The children of Israel remained in captivity because Moses was still struggling to find out what God intended him to do. But when Moses finally decided to live within God's purpose, then all of a sudden the people around him were blessed wildly. The children of Israel were able to leave Egypt free, and not only that, but covered and heaped up with treasures. There's a remarkable verse in Scripture that talks about you and I and this idea of purpose. So grab your Bibles real quick. It's Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not familiar, go to the back of your Bible, work back to the left. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, here's what it says. For we, us, we are God's handiwork. You could also translate that word masterpiece. Here's what's interesting. That word, we are God's handiwork, appears one other time in the New Testament. It's in Romans chapter 1 when it's describing God's creation. So think for a moment. God, when he describes our life, we are God's handiwork, says it is comparable to the masterpiece, the wonder of God's creation. You ever been to Yosemite, to Yellowstone, and just stood there in awe and said, how remarkable is this? How amazing is this that God carved these mountains, made these valleys with the tip of his finger? And the scripture says, you and I are like that masterpiece. You, you and I are God's handiwork created in, G, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus to do good works, to live out his plan, to live out his purpose, not ours, his purpose for our lives, which he prepared in advance before you were even born for us to do which means stop and consider that for a moment. If it's true that every one of us was created with purpose, then what was true in Moses's life is absolutely true in our life. That when we live outside of God's purpose, whatever plan we have for ourselves, it will always be less. It'll always be disappointing in comparison to what our lives would have been if we had lived in God's purpose. 
And, and that if we choose to live outside of God's purpose, there'll be people around us who will experience less in their lives, who, who won't receive some of the blessing in their lives that they would have received if we had chosen to live our life in God's purpose. They would have been blessed by our life because our life was within what God had planned for us, which makes this conversation monumental. It is huge that you and I begin to discover and figure out God's purpose. We're gonna spend the next three weeks talking about things, talking about moments, talking about people, that if we were to see them clearly, we would begin to get an idea. They would begin to give us hints as to what God's purpose was in our life. And here's what we're gonna unpack together today. That the people you've had in your life, good and bad, the people who God has allowed to be in your life, the events that God has allowed to be in your life and to occur, good and bad, actually all worked together to help lead us to our purpose, to the thing God had built us for, created us for. And if we would begin to think about what was God doing when he brought that person in my life? What was God intending when he allowed that event to happen in my life? We'd begin to get an idea of what God's purpose for our lives was. Okay, so here's, here's my guess. There's some of us are going, Lynn, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I've had uh, plenty of people in my life. I've had a lot of different events in my life. And I'm just telling you, I'm wildly confused about what God's purpose. I, I can't figure out how those people and those events actually bring me to God's purpose. Grab your Bibles again. Go with me to the book of Romans. And again, if you're not familiar, you go to the back of your Bible, you're gonna to work to the left. You're gonna find this book of Romans. And guys, it's a verse that you and I are absolutely familiar with. The truth is, if you've been at a funeral, if you've talked to somebody and tried to counsel them when they lost their job, you probably uh, quoted or misquoted this verse. Uh, here it is. It's Romans chapter 8. And here's what we're going to do this time. We're going to move through it just a little slower because there's things in this passage that we've skipped over. Here it is, it's Romans chapter eight, it's verse 28, and here's what it says. We know, we know. This is something that every one of us who follows Jesus ought to understand, have already put in the bucket that says, oh, I get this. We know that in all things, all things, the good things, the bad things, the, the wicked people, the kind people, in all things, in everything, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his next word. There's the one we leave out. He didn't say, hey, he works for the good so that you can be happy. He didn't say he works it for the good so that you and I can be rich. He didn't say he works it to the good so that you and I could get the, He says he works those things to the good that we could then live in the purpose for which God created us. 
For those God called, he foreknew. He knew before you were even born what he was gonna do with you. And he also predetermined, he already predestined what your life was gonna be about. Here's why I created Adam. Here's why I created Andy. Here's why I created Sarah. I knew that before I made them. For God foreknew and he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That every one of those people, every one of those events would rub up against us to make us look more like Jesus so that we could live in our purpose. So God is working all things for good. You mean that crazy dysfunctional family I grew up in? (laughs) You're telling me my parents who were wildly, wildly strict or they were just like Looney Tunes crazy. I mean, you're telling me that family was for my good. Yeah. That's, That's what he just said. We know that God is working all those things for our good. Oh, wait, 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 Lynn. You're talking about that time I got a promotion at work and then it was way over my head. I couldn't do what I had just been promoted to do and then I ended up fired. You're telling me that was good. Yeah. That's exactly what it said. He worked all things for good. Wait, 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 Lynn. You're telling me that when that evil person was evil to me, when they did nothing but hate me and cause me harm, you're, you're telling me that that was good. That's what he just said. Oh, Lynn, you, you mean uh, when I got that promotion and suddenly my family had tons of money and we got to buy all the things we never thought we were going to get to buy? That was good. Yeah. You're going, well, that one's easy. That one I understood. Maybe not, right? Because what if that made me greedy? What if that made me dependent on stuff? But yet scripture says, no, 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 that was good. Hey, what about that time when I was a kid and the other kids bullied me? You're telling me that was good. It was good. God worked all those things to direct us and to lead us into our purpose. So uh, I'm in sixth grade, and uh, our school had been growing, and so they ended up moving the sixth grade kids all out to these portables that they had outside. So I remember this morning, I'd gotten there a little bit early. The teacher hadn't showed up yet. The door was locked, and so we're all standing, about six of us, seven of us, on this ramp waiting uh, to go in uh, to the portable. And I don't even to this day know what started it, but one of the kids on the ramp, one of the other boys on the ramp, begin to call me a name, and, and I won't share the name because the name would be vile. And they saw that that caused me to react. And in that moment, that group of boys became like a pack of wolves and just began to mercilessly pour it on me. There, there was one boy in particular, his name was Greg Adams, and that, that kid had the gift of whatever, And I'm just telling you, his cuts, his wounding words went deeper than any of the other boys. I went home. I ran home. I didn't go to school that day. My mom found out that I had 
ditch school. She then went to the principal. The boys got in trouble. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. So now I go through sixth grade. I go through all of junior high. I get into high school, and part of my commitment in high school was that I was going to live out loud for Jesus. I was going to be bold with my faith. I was going to let the other students know where I stood with Christ. And one day, I was witnessing to one of my classmates, and I just telling him about Jesus. And that classmate then said to me, you know what? You're just like Greg Adams. I said, what? Not that vile, not that horrible, not that vicious. I'm nothing like Greg Adams. He goes, no, 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 no. He's a Christian like you, and he's just over the top, like sold out and following Jesus. I went, there's no chance. There's no chance. That, that guy's going to be the first guy in line to hell. That's who Greg Adams is. He ain't no follower of my Jesus. Lo and behold, a couple of days later, I'm having lunch. I look across, and there's Greg Adams sitting there, and I, I just felt compelled to go up and begin to talk to him. And I just said, Greg, I, I heard that you're a Christian. Turned out, Greg Adams was an absolutely sold-out, on-fire follower of Jesus Christ. He was actually uh, thinking about going into ministry. He invited me to his church, and I got a chance to go and just see where he was serving all over the place. You know what God did in that moment? That moment that started with such darkness and then ended with a conversation with a guy that I regarded as my enemy? He allowed me to see the redemptive work of God to understand that no matter how wounding and how dark a person was, that they weren't beyond the hand of God to redeem. I'm just thinking as God's plan for my life was to become a pastor, that was probably a good lesson to learn. Yeah, even that bully at school was the hand of God, the goodness of God in your life. Second thing, We misunderstand good because we put good in the category of happy. See, if that person or if that event made me happy, then that must have been good. But that's not what good is about. Good is about once I go through the event or once I experience the person, I'm better, I'm stronger. I'm further along in my Christ-like faith. What did it say? That we would become like Jesus. Good is not that it was fun. Good is that after I experience that moment, I'm stronger. I'm further along. Years ago, I was, uh, took a group of teenagers up snow skiing. And uh, we started out, I was by myself, uh, I went down to blue. Now, let me explain for some that don't know. So green hills are like for beginners. Blue hills are intermediate. Black hills, you die. Okay, that's just, that's how this works. So I'm skiing a blue, and the unfortunate thing is as I got to the bottom of this blue, there was actually this patch for about 200 yards that had moguls, huge bumps that get cut when the skiers go through, and so they become incredibly hard to ski. Matter of fact, part of being a black is you have the bumps the whole way down. So I get to these bumps, and I am crash and burn, crash and burn. I must have fallen nine times in that 200 yards, which is horrible as a skier because your skis come off, and you got to stop on the side of a hill and put your skis. Just horrible experience. So after I got done skiing that, some of, the other, some of the young people who were in my youth group came up and said, hey, come ski with us. Now, I knew they were skiing more advanced hills than I was skiing. 
But if you understand me, I am highly competitive. And there is no way I'm going to let some high school kids out-ski me. So guess where they immediately took me? Black Diamond. So talk about falling. Talk, talk about coming down the hill and, and doing what they call in skiing terms, giving a yard sale because everything you're wearing comes flying off all day long. And I'm just going to tell you that if you'd come to me in that moment and said, Lynn, how was skiing today? I would have said to you, not good. There was nothing that was fun about that. There was nothing that was enjoyable about that. I am bruised and wounded. Not good. Out of curiosity, as the day came to the end, I thought to myself, you know what? I think maybe I've started to kind of learn how to turn on those big bumps, and, and I ought to go back to that blue that I skied earlier and see how I do on that 200-yard stretch. So I go over to the hill. I come down the hill. I get to the bottom. I never saw the 200-yard stretch. I thought, some snow plow must have come and smoothed it all over. And then I turned and looked up the hill, and it was still there. You get what had happened. By experiencing what I experienced on the blacks, the blue had become easy. What had felt like a horrible day had actually made me a better skier. And guys, you need to understand that in God's economy, good is not about fun. Good is not about happy. Good is about you are better, more equipped to be like Jesus and to live in your purpose. Okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to go through Scripture. I, uh, there's a story in the Bible. It's the story of the lights of Joseph that is a remarkable, remarkable story about God preparing a man for his purpose, okay? And we're going to go through his life and through the events of his life. And what I want us to do is this. When that moment happens, we're going to either call that moment good or bad. We're going to put it in one of the two boxes, the way that we would have always done it before the beginning of this conversation, okay? Don't get real spiritual on me yet. Let's do it the way we would have always done it before today, okay? So, in the story of Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, begins, the story of Joseph begins with a dream. So here's what God says to Joseph. Hey, Joseph, you're gonna be a ruler. And when you rule, you're actually gonna rule over your entire family. Joseph has two dreams. The first dream is about a whole bunch of bales of wheat. And one bale of wheat stands up on its end. The other 11, because Joseph has 11 brothers, all bow down to the first pile of wheat. And Joseph knows immediately. That means even though I'm one of the youngest brothers, I'm second to the youngest, all of my brothers one day will bow down to me. He then has a second dream. In the second dream, the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to Joseph. So he tells that dream because it's about not only his brothers, but now it's about his father and his mother, which is unthinkable in Oriental culture that your parents would ever bow down and give homage to you. And yet God is giving young Joseph a promise. Hey, Joseph, I'm going to so bless your life that even your own family will bow down to you one day. So would we put that typically on the good side or the bad side? Good side, okay? So here we go. Good side. Good for you, Joseph. That's probably pretty good, 
over there. Second major event in the story of Joseph's life are his brothers. His brothers already resent Joseph. Joseph grows up in a highly dysfunctional family. And a part of the dysfunction of Joseph's family is that Joseph's dad, Jacob, actually loves Joseph more than all of his other sons. Now, you've never done that with a child. But we have wanted to kill a child. Kind of the same thing. But Jacob loves Joseph more than any of his other brothers. And just to let everybody know that he's the favorite, he gives Joseph a coat of many colors. It's an unbelievable. It, 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 it's a Robert Graham cloak, okay? And so now he wears it, and every day that Joseph wears that cloak, his brothers resent him. Well, imagine when Joseph tells his brothers about the dream, that one day all of them will bow down to him. And then his brothers absolutely hate him. Matter of fact, it says they could not even think a good thought about Joseph from that day forward. Good thing, bad thing, dysfunctional family. Bad thing. His brothers hate him so deeply that one day they come up with a plan that says, we're going to get this guy out of our family. Uh, we're going to kill him. So one day Joseph is sent to check upon his brothers, see how they're doing watching the sheep. As they come, they say, here's our moment. Uh, they grab Joseph, they throw him down in a pit, and they plot, how do we kill this guy? Uh, one of the other brothers says, look, 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 look. If we kill him, we don't get anything for it. Let's sell him into slavery. Wouldn't you like to have a brother like that? Uh, and so they say, hey, that's a great plan. Uh, there's a caravan coming by. They sell Joseph into slavery. They take that coat of many colors. They put animal blood on it. They take it back to dad and say, apparently your son's been ripped to pieces. So now Joseph has been sold into slavery. Good thing, bad thing. Bad thing. Oh, oh bad thing. Okay. While Joseph is in slavery, uh, he actually ends up working for a fairly uh, prominent man. Uh, his name is Potiphar. He's the captain of the guard uh, for Pharaoh in Egypt. And uh, the captain of the guard, after he sees how Joseph is uh, doing really well, begins to promote Jesus, to, uh, Joseph, Jesus, Joseph, uh, Jesus shows up later, uh, Joseph, uh, to being kind of head over his entire household. Now, this one's hard. Because on the one hand, Joseph is Potiphar's slave. On the other hand, he's being promoted to being the top slave. So where do we put this? Is this one good or is this one bad? All right, all right, all right. We'll put it in the middle. All right. A little bit good, a little bit bad. We'll do that. Next experience that happens in Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph apparently is an amazingly good-looking young man. And uh, Potiphar's wife uh, takes notice. And so scripture says that day after day, whenever Potiphar's out of the house, she tries to seduce Joseph. And Joseph, over and over and over again, has kind of turned down uh, her advances. 
till one day she literally corners him in her bedroom and says, come on, lie down with me. Potiphar will never know. I'm convinced that in that moment, Joseph was actually in huge temptation because of what he does next. Scripture says he ran from the room. Now, guys, if he wasn't being tempted, he'd have walked from the room. But he's thinking, I stay here a second longer, I'm going to be, I'm running. And in the midst of that, she reaches out, grabs a hold of him, pulls his cloak off. And Joseph, to get away, just slips out and whoop, books as fast as he can. When Potiphar comes home, Potiphar's wife tells Potiphar, hey, your servant tried to rape me. And now Joseph is in horrible trouble. Good thing, bad thing. That's actually really bad. All right. I hate that one. Joseph ends up sent to jail. The guy who did nothing wrong is in jail. While he's there, and we don't know the extent of time, but we do know for sure it's years. Again, the jailer, uh, seeing that uh, Joseph is highly capable, uh, begins to give him more and more and more responsibility in jail. And so he actually makes him like the head prisoner in jail. Good thing to be the head prisoner in jail. Bad thing to be the head prisoner in jail. All right, I'm going to lean a little bit on the bad side because personally, I don't want to be the head prisoner. Oh, that's a good side. All right. I do not want to be the head prisoner in any jail. While he's there in jail, he uh, meets uh, two fellow prisoners. Uh, one is the Pharaoh's baker, and one is the Pharaoh's cupbearer. And you understand that a cupbearer would have like tasted everything, sipped on everything ahead of time to make sure Pharaoh wasn't being poisoned. Both these guys were in jail. We don't know for sure what it was, but somehow they displeased Pharaoh. They're in jail. While they're in jail, they have dreams. And Joseph is able to accurately interpret their dreams. It ends up with the baker being hung and dying, but it ends up with the cupbearer being restored to his position. And in that moment, uh, Joseph says to the cupbearer, look, you're gonna end up back in the king's court, you're gonna end up back in Pharaoh's presence, and when you do, remember me. Remember me, tell him about me, that I'm here unfairly. That, that I didn't do any of the things I'm accused of. Remember to tell him about me. And the Bible tells us that the cupbearer, once he got back in the presence of Pharaoh, promptly forgot all about Joseph. You ready? For two more years. Good, bad. Bad, okay. Two years later, uh, Pharaoh has a dream. Uh, none of Pharaoh's magicians or wise men or sorcerers are able uh, to interpret the dream. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, the cupbearer goes, oh, I know a guy. Uh, he's down in prison. He interpreted a dream for me. Pharaoh calls for Joseph. They bring Joseph into Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh describes the dream. 
And Joseph immediately says, oh, here's what the dream means. It means there's gonna be seven years of plenty in Egypt. There's gonna be seven years of famine in Egypt. If you were smart, you'd take the plenty of the seven years, store it up in grain, in warehouses. When the seven years of famine come, you'd have plenty of food to get through the famine. Pharaoh, hearing the plan, says, well, who else would lead us to do that? And promptly promotes Joseph to be the number two leader in Egypt. Nobody has more authority, more power than Joseph. Good thing, bad thing. Probably a pretty good thing. I'm thinking like crazy good thing, right? So here's the problem. When you and I do this, when, when we take the events and the people and the things that God brought in our life, and we begin to put them in two buckets, good thing, bad thing, we cannot see the purpose of God. This becomes absolutely confusing. Matter of fact, you ready, you ready for this? Scripture says that when Joseph was sent to Potiphar's house, this is Genesis chapter 39, it clearly says this statement. Here he is being sold into slavery, and Scripture says, and God was with Joseph. Wait, 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 wait a minute, God. This is one of the crummier moments of his life. This is, he, he's being sold as a slave into a foreign country. No, 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 Scripture says, and God was with him. Why? Because that moment, as hard as it was, as difficult as it was, God was working it to his purpose. You ready for this? Uh, when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, when he was sent to jail, guess what scripture says? And God was with him, working out God's plan, working out God's purpose in the thing that you and I readily said was a horrible event in his life. And yet it was God's plan to prepare him for God's purpose. And here's what you and I have got to shift. We, don't, don't, ever, don't ever do this again. This is the way the world thinks about events. Remember what did scripture say? We all know that God works all things for our good to his purpose. We, we gotta start th stop thinking good, bad. Start thinking purpose. Why did God bring that event in my life? Why did God allow that person in life? Because it means something, it's a pointer to my purpose. So do this. Remember Joseph having the dream? You realize in that moment, Joseph in that moment became all sorts of arrogant, all sorts of prideful. He's like, man, this is gonna be so cool. My parents are gonna bow down to me. My brothers are gonna bow down to me. So much so that he actually then tells everybody what's coming. Why would you tell everybody what's coming unless you were like, ha, <laughs> Right? His brothers end up hating him. It is an absolutely clear indicator that this guy has no emotional intelligence. I mean, if you even thought about this for two seconds, you should have thought, okay, my brothers are already bugged about my robe. This is gonna tip them over the top. And Joseph has no, he has no clue 
sold into slavery. You want to take a prideful young man and teach him humility? Take everything away. And God in that moment is teaching him, hey, this promotion you're going to get, the thing you're going to do, it's not about you. And we're going to teach you how to be humble. He goes to Potiphar's house. He gets the promotion. He gets to lead all of Potiphar's house. You know what that was, right? Leadership 101. Joseph, I'm going to start teaching you what it means to lead others, to, to be in charge of others. Potiphar's wife, he's lied about, he's maligned by her. Hey, Joseph, you're going to learn what it means to be faithful when the world's coming apart. You're going to learn what it means to trust me when it feels like everything is being taken away. Sent to jail you realize that's a master's class in leadership. Stop and think about it. Who would be the hardest people in the world to lead? Criminals. And he literally puts them in jail and says, okay, I'm just gonna give you the worst of the worst, and you're gonna learn how to lead them. Master class in leadership. He says to the cupbearer, hey, remember me when you get to Pharaoh, tell him I'm down here innocent. And it's a moment in Joseph's life where he's trying to fix his own problem with his own strength and his own time. And God leaves him there two more years to teach Joseph, Joseph, we'll do this when I do it. Not when you do it, Joseph. Promoted to ruler of all Egypt. But not until God had worked everything in Joseph's life to prepare him to be ready to do this. And guys, I'm I'm just saying to you, if we'd stop putting things in the good bucket and bad bucket and simply go back and start following the line and saying, hey, I wonder why God did, what was God teaching me through that moment? What was God preparing me for? What, What was it God that was setting me up to do? And instead of asking the question, is it good or is it bad? But instead say, what was God doing in my life? What was the lesson I was supposed to learn to be a better skier, to be able to handle that problem better or differently? Chances are you'll get a glimpse of the purpose that God is building in you. Okay, okay, okay. So here's what I know. Right now you're going, Bible story, doesn't count. Everything turns out okay in the Bible. Okay. Real life story. When I'm nine, my parents divorce. My worldview of a Christian home and what it was to be literally disintegrated in a moment. I guarantee you, I put that in the bad bucket My mom, despite the fact that we were financially broke, you've heard me tell the stories of not having clothes and not having food. 
my mom was absolutely faithful to Jesus Christ. I had the opportunity firsthand to watch somebody go through the hardest moments of life and keep Jesus in front of her. I've told you the story that my youngest sister, the youngest of four, was horribly autistic, horribly broken. And I will, oh, I will tell you that I put that on the bad side. I'd bring friends over and she would hit them when they walked in the room. She would take her clothes off and run around naked and I, I was so embarrassed of my baby sister. God brought a youth pastor into my life who just awoke my appetite and my hunger for scripture. We spent hours and hours just talking about the Bible together. I got called to ministry hanging around Wayne. God brought another man in my life. Oh, wait, wait. I think it's this one. Here we go. I had started into ministry. Uh, I was doing a wonderful job. Just got to make that clear. A pastor, a pastor treated me wildly unfairly and then fired me in the name of Jesus. God uh, brought a gentleman, you've heard me talk about him in the past, by the name of George Bedlian, who just mentored me, mentored me, mentored me, taught me ministry. I, I've told you before, when I make decisions here at Corner, I, I stand on that man's shoulders because of what he taught me. God took me to a little church in Southern California in a place called Yucaipa. Man, Yucaipa is one of those towns you drive through and you go, why do people live here? And yet while we did ministry in that town, our youth group blew up. We had kids coming out. The, the, there was one high school in the whole town. The high school would call us up and say, can we please have the youth group calendar? Because we can't plan an event at the high school if it's on the same night the church is doing something. Our kids won't come. We turned that... Yucaipa is weird because you go... Dirty, ugly little town, broken, kind of scruffy church, and yet amazing ministry. So maybe you put that one in the middle. God called me to Cornerstone. Can I tell you that being the pastor of this church has been nothing but the greatest blessing of my life apart from knowing Jesus? Yeah. Knowing Jesus, marrying my wife, that's a really close third in my life. And guys, I'm just telling you, when you do this, you go, I, wait, wait, I, I, it doesn't, right? But if you go back, and instead of saying, is that good or bad, but start to say, hey, what was God doing? Can I tell you that uh, my dad was getting ready to go off into a season of his life of just absolute sin. I now look back in retrospect and go, that may have been the absolute 
grace of God that I didn't grow up watching firsthand my dad's behavior. I want to say this out loud real quick because I always told this story. Uh, my dad ended up coming to Cornerstone, turned his life around for Jesus. Uh, he had, we had his funeral about two months ago. And I was able to stand at that funeral and say, hey, all the wound of this, all the hurt of this, it doesn't matter because I've seen the redemptive work of God. I've seen what God can do with Greg Adams and I've seen what God can do with my dad. You, you get that by watching my mom's faithfulness. I learned faithfulness. I, I learned what it was like to stand in the hardest moments of life and just say, I don't understand it. I don't get it. It's not fair. But I choose to be faithful. I choose to keep following God, even though I don't see the plan. When I was unfairly fired... That's when God sent me to George. That's when God sent me to Yaka. I would have never left that church if God hadn't allowed that man to unfairly remove me uh, from that church. My baby sister, Diane, God knew, much like Joseph starting out with an arrogant and prideful young man, for me, he started out with a selfish young man. And he gave me a baby sister that every day when I went home needed patience and kindness. Do you think God was thinking about my future when he did that? God gave me a man who made me excited and thrilled about ministry. My call of ministry happened underneath him. He took me to a crummy little town and did amazing ministry to teach me that from little beginnings, great things could happen. Anybody know how many people we started Cornerstone with? 24. From little things, great things could happen. He gave me a man in my life by the name of George who literally mentored me and mentored me and mentored me and taught me in ministry. Oh, by the way, did I mention, remember the unfairly fired? The youth group I had led in that church where I was unfairly fired? When years later, thinking about planting a church, the young people who'd been in that youth group who now were older and had kids of their own called me on the phone and said, if you would come back we'd help you plant a church in Chandler. And Cornerstone. And guys, it's the reason I can stand in front of you, and you've heard me do it on Sundays, and say, I was born to pastor this church because it has been the purpose and the plan of God in my entire life. Now, I can't say how long I'm going to be here because somewhere the elders are going to get smart and they'll get rid of me, but up until now, it's been the plan and purpose for my life. And guys, here's the thing. Guys, if you catch nothing else, stop calling it good. Stop calling it bad. 
begin to ask, why did God bring that person? Why did God bring that event in my life? What was he teaching me? What was he preparing me for? Because if I can start thinking purpose of God, then chances are I'll see the purpose of God in all of the events and all of the people that God has brought in my life. Okay, here's how we're gonna land this. Every one of you should have gotten a card like this. Did you get a card like this? If you didn't get a card like this, you're gonna raise your hand. You want a card like this. Okay, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. You're gonna do this later on, okay? Uh, on the left side, I want you to write the names of people that have been in your, significant people, good or bad, we're, right? We're not doing that, we're just significant people. People who you say, hey, their presence in my life has had an effect on my life. A horrible boss, a wonderful friend, I don't care. All people and events that have happened in our lives. On the other side, right across from those people and those events, instead of saying, hey, that was good or that was bad, I want you to write in there, this is what I believe God was teaching me, moving in me, preparing me. As best I understand, he was teaching me to be patient. He was teaching me to be loving. He was, he was teaching me to be faithful. He was teaching me to love really, really hard. Whatever that is that God was doing, because here's what we're next. When I then go to that right-hand column of what God has been preparing me for, there's a really good chance when I get to the bottom, I go, oh, there it is, purpose, purpose. It's what he's been doing all along in my life. Hey, the other thing that I just wanna encourage us, not only to do the card as we leave, but we've got uh, classes. We've got small groups with a curriculum. We've got small churches with a curriculum and they are geared to help us because there's a chance even as we finish the next couple of conversations, you'll still be a little hazy on this purpose thing. And so we've prepared those so that you can enroll and go and get much more one-on-one -on -one kind of care to say, hey, how do I figure out my purpose in my life? And you can enroll. All you're doing right now is saying, I'm interested. You're not enrolling anything. You're saying, I'm interested by texting the word purpose to 21999. And then we're going to get you the information. You're going to choose the one that makes the most sense for you as you chase after purpose. Let's pray real quick. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, come to you in the moment and we ask you to be clear in our lives. Help us understand what you were doing in our lives. That God, we would not only see your purpose for us, we would then step into your purpose for us. God, how powerful would it be if every last one of us began to live in your purpose for which you created us. God, give us that privilege. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Lynn. It would be our honor to pray with you. You're welcome to come down front. We'll do that. And let's not forget about the backpack drive. We have 100 out of 500 backpacks fulfilled already. So let's knock that out this week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>